Welcome, 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 everyone, to another episode of Workplace Therapy. It's a weekly podcast where we discuss the impact of work on our lives and invest in doing the work of healing together. My name's Scott Arietta. I'm the founder and CEO of Unity & Company. It's a consulting firm that leverages a strategic understanding of human experiences to help organizations unlock best-in-class performance. So today in Workplace Therapy... We're going to be discussing how the roles we take on at work have shaped the way that we show up in other areas of our lives. Specifically, we're going to be taking a deep dive into how our work lives have influenced our perspectives as parents. So with that being said, I can't think of a better guest for today's session than my lovely wife and mother of our two beautiful children, Monica Arietta. All right, I'm going to go um, and change the topic a little bit. So the next thing on my list, next big lesson I've learned is... Um, it's about finding your path in life. And so, Monica, you know this because you were with me during, you know, my 20s, which uh, my 20s were an interesting time for me. So, you know, I've told I've told the story kind of in passing on the podcast before, but um, so I was raised in this Asian household, you know, and I think, you know, my parents, with all the best intentions, they saw that I was doing fairly well academically and, you know, that I had like an interest and an aptitude for the sciences and math and stuff. And um, they had gone to medical school and it actually dropped out um, almost like right at the end, right? Because they, you know, immigrated to the States. You know, I was born, they wanted me to be born here and have a better life here things like that. And so um, my dad already had an engineering degree and, you know, ended up having a really successful career um, as a mechanical engineer, working for a big defense contractor. And my mom ended up working, um, you know, in the the medical field um, as a medical technologist, um, you know, for, uh, for LA County. And then, you know, eventually when we moved to Arizona, um, taking on roles there. Um, and then she kind of dabbled in real estate too, um, over the years, um, as well. But I think it had always been like an mm -hmm. unrequited dream of theirs to become physicians. Right. And, you know, if you have Asians in your life or you come from an Asian background, you're probably well aware of the fact that it's like becoming a doctor is like the, it is like the universal aspiration of every Asian parent is either to be physicians themselves or to have kids who are physicians, you know, doctors, lawyers, engineers, like those are the three professions mm -hmm. that are kind of like a cut above all the rest. Right. And those are great jobs. Right. Um, and I think, you know, when my parents taught me about this as a kid, it was all about, hey, you'd be doing a lot of good in the world and, you know, you'd make great money and you wouldn't have to worry about your financial security and you'd always have job security because people are never going to stop needing doctors. Right. And so they're just like, and like there's a lot of respect and prestige like that comes with the position. So they wanted the best for their kids and for them, that's what the best looked mm -hmm. like. Right. But we talked about strengths finder and that's why that was such a big unlock for me because it's like, yeah, on paper, all those boxes look fantastic. Like I'm capable of being a doctor mm -hmm. intellectually, you know, um, based off of the grades that I had achieved and, you know, and stuff like that. But, um, but the part that wasn't factored into consideration is like, what am I uniquely strong at? And what are my passions mm -hmm. and my hopes and dreams? Like, where do I see myself as a person? And those individualized concepts were not something that I had language around. It's not something I had an example in my life that I could point to. 
because again, I think like, you know, the governing factor of my household was this idea of responsibility. And I benefited from that. My parents felt that they were responsible for giving me every advantage. And so they sacrificed and they did things to help make sure that I had every possible advantage in life. Right. Um, And so that was the example that I saw every day. And I didn't really have an example of like, well, what do you want to do? Like, what are you strong at? What, like, what, um, what motivates you and gets you excited? And so the idea that not only was it okay to have an appreciation of your individual strengths and to want to do something that resonates with just you, but it's actually more efficient. It's pragmatic, right? It's like you will be more successful if you lean into the things where your heart Mm -hmm. and your head are aligned, you know? And um, so that was like the big aha in my 20s. But the problem was it took me all of my 20s to figure out okay, what do you do with that information? Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, cause you'd like, I had been preparing to be a doctor my entire life up to that point. I'd been getting straight A's in school. I took something like 13 APs in high school. I applied to one college based off of the pre-med school standings and I got there and I hated it. And I thought about the next 10 years of my life going through undergrad and med school and residency and fellowship and like all of that stuff. And I was just like, I, this sounds awful (laughs) to me. I don't care how much money is at the end of that tunnel. This sounds terrible. And so I dropped out and, you know, and then I, I, I came back, you know, that was a school in California. I came back to Arizona, kind of my tail between my legs and just being completely directionless, right? And so I re-enrolled at the University of Arizona and took this shotgun approach to try to just desperately figure out, like, what's resonating with me? So I took, you know, classes in literature and law and um, business and philosophy and, like, comparative religions, Mm -hmm. like, just anything. I'm like, what is it that I want to do? And then I didn't really find the answer in the classroom. I actually found the answer in music. And, um... And I found a band that, um, and I plugged into my amp for the first time and heard my voice on the loudspeakers. And I'm like, yeah. oh my God, I want to do this for the rest of my life, you know? And that, that, that pull was so huge that I dropped out of college again and, you know, really kind of for a short period of time, put all of my effort and energy kind of around music. And, um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, you know this, Monica, but for the rest of the listeners, I'm, you know, spoiler <laughs> alert, obviously not in a famous band. I'm not a physician today, but um, but I do still, as evidenced by all the musical instruments in the background, I like music is still a, a huge part of my life. It's just not what I've chosen to do for my vocation. But one of the things that I realized in the years that followed was, um, was basically like, Being in a band was my first exposure to the idea that very different people under the right leadership can produce beautiful music together when all the natural forces in the world 
are trying to pull you apart. Like if you've ever seen like Spinal Tap or like <laughs> have known anyone in a band, you know that the state of equilibrium is constant <laughs> conflict. Like there are creative differences, there are perspective differences, there are like levels of engagement differences. Some people want to make this their life. Some people is like, this is just a cool thing I do to blow off steam, right? And you guys are constantly fighting, constantly trying to break up right? That is what a band is doing. And unless you have somebody at the center that is really trying to hold everything together, um, you will eventually, it will like, you'll spontaneously combust as a rock band. And so that's where I really started to get a sense of myself. And, you know, the idea that like, I didn't, I hadn't really had any formal leadership experience at the time. But I did realize that my passion for music and creativity and the innate understanding I had of people's differences and diplomacy um, equipped me to really kind of be that unifying force, like in the bands that I was a part of, you know, and we all broke up eventually because the, you know, your twenties are really kind of that foundational part of your life where you do end up figuring out what you're going to do. And, you know, that eventually pulled us all apart, but it was honestly like the first real proving grounds for leadership, for appreciating that like everybody's got self-serving tendencies. Everybody wants to be the highest in the mix. They want to hear, you know, drums wants drums to be loudest. Guitars wants guitars to be loudest. Bass wants to hear themselves and be taken seriously. <laughs> you know, it's like, like that's what all these, all these musicians are trying to do. And, um, and to take those individualistic tendencies and try to kind of unify mm -hmm. each other so that you can make music that creates an emotional reaction in other people. Um, that's something that I learned about myself in that process. And so long story, a little bit less long. Um, I think what that really taught me is, um, I mean, A, it taught me about individualism and how individuals can come together to create something that is better than the sum of the parts, but that it takes a unifying force and a catalyst to hold everything together. And that's the value of great leadership. But it also taught me that there is more than one way and other people's expectations for your life don't have to be your expectations for your life. In fact, it's probably better mm -hmm. that they're not your expectations for your life because you will spend an inordinate amount of time and energy trying to fulfill this expectation of your life that is imposed on you by somebody else. And it will create all sorts of stress fractures and all sorts of feelings of deficiency and unfulfilledness. Unfulfilledness, is that a word? Unfulfillment? Mm -hmm. In your in your world, you know. Um, but a better way is starting with an understanding of what are you strong at? Mm -hmm. What is it that you want? Like what gets you excited to even think about in the morning? And then the last piece is like, what does the world need, Right. And if you think about a Venn diagram, the place where those three things intersect, that's what you should be doing mm -hmm. with your life, right? And that should be the backdrop against which you evaluate every opportunity. How much does it speak to what I'm good at? How much does it speak to what I'm motivated by? Mm -hmm. And how much does the world need it, right? And if it has all three, take the opportunity, you know, until you outgrow it mm -hmm. and then do something else.
I love that for so many reasons. I mean, I think this idea of everybody's path looks a little different, right? Your path is not the path that your parents necessarily want for you, right? Like a lot of parents take this approach of, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't get to be in a band. I didn't get to live out my dream as a rock star. So my kid's going to be the one that's going to live that out for me, right? I'm going to live vicariously (laughs) through them. But I think the fact that we are acutely aware that our path, what we want for them is not one specific thing. It's not for them to be a doctor or a rock star or whatever, unless that's truly what resonates with them. It's more kind of this framework that you just shared about, like, what are you good at? What motivates you and what does the world need? And as long as they can speak to those things, I don't care what it is, right? Go go live your best life and know that, to your other point, maybe that serves you for a year or five years or 10 and that you don't just have to pigeonhole yourself into doing this one thing. I think we all, and myself included, up until recently, were struggling to figure out what what's my purpose? What am I built for? What is that one thing that I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life? And that's just not a thing. There is There may be one thing, but most of the time there's lots of things, right? And you go through different chapters and seasons in your life. And I think what we're trying to teach our kids is that it's okay. Okay, you don't have to figure out what you're going to be when you grow up. Like, just ask yourself those three questions. What am I good at? What motivates me? And what does the world need? And as long as you keep filtering those opportunities through those three questions, you're going to get where you need to go. Yep. Mm. All right. You've got a couple of really good ones. Um, and so I want to, I want to seed the floor, take off my storytelling hat and, uh, give you the opportunity to kind of talk about these next two points. Yeah. I mean, it kind of dovetails into what you were talking about, um, in terms of this, the bands that you've been in, right. And how it's just this constant pursuit of trying to manage conflict because everybody's got their own agenda. Right. And I think that there's so many, I mean, conflict is everywhere. It's in the workplace. It's in our homes. It's it's within ourselves a lot of times. And, and I think, you know, in my career, there's been lots of times where I didn't know how to manage that conflict, right? I, there was a lot of coming up for me, a lot of big emotions, a lot of, you know, maybe a boss that was really hard to talk to that didn't make me feel psychologically safe, that maybe there was a peer that was not doing what they were supposed to be doing and what wasn't really part of the team. Like, how do you really work through conflict in a productive and healthy way? And, you know, you and I don't get that right all the time. Nobody does. But I think the important lessons that we are learning just as a couple and as we're working through and navigating this next chapter of our life is like, how can we teach our kids how to navigate conflict? (laughs) Because let's face it, they're, they're hardwired for conflict, like when they come out of the womb and for the rest of their life. And, and it is really difficult for adults to figure this out, let alone kids. And kind of going back to my earlier point about all these this peer pressure and expectation that they're constantly being faced with, especially Lucas in his sort of preteen years, there's a lot of, you know, kids who are trying to figure out their way and they're trying to understand their place in the world. And that manifests in some ugly ways sometimes. And, and so we've had a lot of conversation with Lucas, especially recently, how do you 
number one, how do you manage yourself in the face of that conflict, right? And I think we've talked a lot about like recognizing those emotions, naming them, like I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling frustrated, whatever that is. And then really trying to help them understand where is that feeling showing up in their body, right? Do you feel like tension in your chest? Do you feel it in your face? Like, where is it? And then, you know, really helping them understand like you can manage yourself and you should, but you can't manage other people, right? And that is so, so hard because even, even for me, sometimes I have expectations of how I want people to show up for me. And when they don't, then I really have to ask myself like, well, okay, that didn't go the way I wanted it to. That person didn't do the thing that I was hoping that they were going to do. And I can still manage myself. I can still manage my expectations. I can have that conversation with that person and tell them how that made me feel and, and really be, you know, cognizant of my own boundaries. But at the end of the day, you, we can only control ourselves. We can't control other people. And, and that's been a really tough lesson, especially for Lucas, I feel like in his, his season of life with his peer group. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, to be fair, I think it's something that unless you consciously invest in, it's something that everybody has the potential to struggle with sometimes until the rest of their life. Like, you know, a lot of people really do not grasp this idea that their expectations, it is the gap between their expectations and what they experience that is the root of all dissatisfaction. And something that I work with a lot of clients with on customer service interventions, right? And it seems so simple, right? But it's like, you'll be surprised how many people's minds are blown by it's like, oh yeah, it really is that simple, right? It's like, what is the customer expecting versus what is the experience that actualized? What is the gap between those two? And in between those gaps or that gap lies the solution to the problem, right? And I think, you know, but when it comes down to individuals and you think about that, that equation, so if the equation is dissatisfaction equals the difference between my expectations and the experience, which one of those variables can you control? Mm-hmm. You can only control one. That's your expectations. You can't control the experience. The experience happened, yeah. right? But you can control your expectations and bring them more in line with the experience. Or if the gap is fundamental mm-hmm. and it needs to be closed to the point that you just made, you also have the ability to enter into the conversation Mm -hmm. and give the feedback and say, this is the experience that I had. This is the expectation that I had. The difference between my experiences and my expectations is too large. And we need to figure out a way of shrinking that in the future. Otherwise we're not going to be able to work effectively together or otherwise Mm -hmm. we will have conflict, you know, and being able to express it, in that way makes conflict feel more solvable, right? Versus I think the language that a lot of people use when they are in conflict Mm -hmm. is unactionable, right? Or Mm -hmm. accusatory, which puts people on the defensive and makes them just not want to engage with you and fix the experience, right? And so, um, yeah, just so much good stuff there about navigating conflict in a work setting and how it translates 
uh, to our personal lives, not, not just as parents. I mean, like, I think this applies to, you know, us as spouses or like within friend groups or even mm-hmm. within family groups. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that I've, I've been working on, you know, with my family is differences in our political ideologies. Right. And I think that that is something that is big enough to really rip a lot of families apart, not just, not because their perspectives are different, right? But because of the way that they handle those yeah. differences in perspectives, right? Um, people never adjust their expectations of each other, right? And where it rips families and friends apart is that certain people's expectations are that you will be here, you know, you will be at this level of, you know, awareness about, you know, your own kind of like political affiliation and the impacts of the things that you believe. And when people don't Mm -hmm. change, right. Um, their expectations never are adjusted and Mm -hmm. you're just in constant conflict. Or you can say like, Hey, I love you for these reasons. You're worth having in my life for all these other reasons. We don't see eye to eye politically, mm-hmm. but I don't expect that that is a requirement for us to coexist peacefully and to still capture all the benefit of what makes our relationship special yeah. and yeah. worthwhile, you know? Um, and I'm not saying like, let me be very clear here. I'm not saying that there is never a threshold at which you need to reevaluate mm-hmm, a relationship, sure. right? Because of significant differences in ideologies and beliefs. There are thresholds going back to something that you talked about earlier, Monica, about mm-hmm. setting healthy boundaries. Sometimes those boundaries mean choosing, you know, different relationships or choosing different approaches. But I do think that there are mm-hmm. at least some relationships that could be salvaged if both parties came to the table with better tools and recognition about how to navigate conflict productively. And I think the way that shows up with our kids, like just to kind of take it back a little bit is what I hear from them a lot in this stage of their life right now is this kind of always and never talk. Right. And I think we can get caught up in this idea of something's always a certain way or it's never a certain way. And, you know, my friends are always being mean to me or they're, they're never calling me. They're never texting me back when I text them. And we can get caught up in these stories that we tell ourselves. And I think that that, that can also influence how we manage conflict, um, whether it be productively or otherwise. I mean, we're all coming to the table with our own filters based on our own experiences and our own, you know, trauma, our own triggers. And I think it's really important that we check in with ourselves to say, like, am I being even handed about this? Am I, am I telling myself a story that's really not true? And, and how can I, in the spirit of reconciliation or working through something to get to the other side of it, how can I really try to understand what that other person's experience is and what they're going through and how it's not just about me all the time, right? And, and knowing that like, as you're working through that conflict or as you're doing anything in your life, you're going to bump into things that are really challenging and you're not always going to get it right. But taking a step back and saying, okay, that, 
didn't go, that didn't go well. What can I learn from it? How can I adjust my approach or my perspective a little bit to, to show some empathy for the other person, even if you don't agree entirely with what they're saying or agree with them at all, you still have another human being that you're interacting with on the other side of that conversation and making sure that, you know, at the end of the day, you can confidently say, I showed up and I was respectful. You know, I treated the other person with dignity. And even though we disagree at the end of the day, I'm proud of how I showed up in that conversation. Yeah. I love that. So important. Um, last point, you have some thoughts here on Mm. mindset and body work. And I think that's a perfect place to close. Yeah. Um, gosh, this is just a life skill, right? This is not specific to work or raising kids or, or anything. It's really just, it's a, it's a philosophy of how we approach, how we think about things, right? We are constantly filling our mind with all these inputs, right? We're getting it from technology. We're getting it from the workplace. We're getting it from our kids, our friends. I mean, you name it, it's coming at us a hundred miles an hour in all directions all the time. And our minds are trying to constantly make sense of the world that we are experiencing every minute of the day. And I think it's so important that we really try to identify like when we're bumping up against something that's not sitting well with us, like what are those emotions that we're feeling? Naming them, kind of going back to what I was talking about earlier with the kids, it really understanding what's coming up in that moment, naming it, talking about it, and identifying where that's happening in our body. What does it feel like, right? Because I think oftentimes we can get so disconnected from ourselves and we get we intellectualize things, but we don't get back in our bodies. And if we don't talk about those things, if we don't if we aren't intentional about identifying them, then those traumas, either micro or, you know, big or little traumas, those can get stored in our body really quickly. And the body is going to keep score and really trying to help our kids understand, like, it's okay for you to feel angry, right? It's okay for you to feel sad. They're hard emotions to feel, but it's part of the human experience and allowing them to feel that and to express that in a safe environment is going to allow them to work through those little microaggressions so that they don't get stored in their little bodies and become bigger issues when they get older. Yeah. And you know, it's so funny because you talk about this stuff with like a level of comfort because it seems like you've you've already done some of the pre-processing, right? But like, I just want to acknowledge if anybody is out there that was like me when I first started learning about this stuff, this stuff is like, what? Like it doesn't, it doesn't really resonate with what we're taught about how we should control ourselves, right? Like, like I think the lessons that we're taught either implicitly or explicitly about how to manage ourselves are really just Mm -hmm. about suppression, not about like identification and like embracing what you're identifying, right? It's like, you know, if you have like an emotional reaction that is inappropriate or not helpful, right? And it's not well-regulated and it's not well-controlled because you don't understand the processes that are happening under the surface that are causing you to feel the way that you feel. And like you said, the body keeps score. And so it aggregates and it accumulates and then eventually it blows up and you like, you present like Mm -hmm. a freaking psychopath, right? Like you look like you're crazy. 
but you're not crazy. You've just been deferring dealing with these things because you yeah. have never been taught like how to deal with that stuff. And so a couple important things of what you said, the body, right? Like you keep talking about the body and I'm like, I'm still trying to figure this out for myself, but like what is true is that, you know, one of the first things they teach you in like meditation and like, you know, and in some therapy is to be aware of like, when you're having these negative emotions, where are they showing up? Right. Like physically in your body. Right. And the first time that somebody challenged me with that, I'm going to be honest. I'm like, this is so like foofy. Mm. This is so like, what is this? You know, it's like, this is not what I signed up for. Right. I just want somebody like, I was thinking about something more academic and intellectual. Like mm -hmm. I'm starting in the mind. Right. And I think like a lot of the work that you've done um, and that I've subsequently started to do is really beginning to appreciate that actually, no, like you shouldn't exclusively focus on the mind the body actually plays a much larger role, right? In helping you to kind of pre-identify like what's going on. And based off of like how your body is feeling, you can then begin to put context and language around your feelings and emotions. And there are some interventions that you can do for yourself that are physically mm -hmm related, not just intellectually yeah. related, right? And I think like bringing it back to the workplace, I think this is a place where most employers just, they, they have this expectation that you come to work fully productive and fully engaged and that you're mm -hmm. a culture bearer and that you're positively contributing to every meeting that you're going to be at and that you're completely emotionally regulated at all times, right? And completely communicative and you use exactly the right language and you don't start conflict and you diffuse conflict early on. And like, that's their expectations of you as an employee. But then what they do not do is they do not invest in any kind of training um, or any kind of encouragement to get you to kind of understand, okay, what are the inputs that make it possible for you to show up mm -hmm. in the way that we're expecting? And the inputs that are necessary are the things that we've talked about on this podcast, you know, setting healthy boundaries, managing conflict effectively, like tempering their own expectations, deploying people according to their strengths and motivations, you know, and helping people to understand that there are physical reactions to workplace experiences that are happening and that they should be aware of those and that they should understand how those are impacting yeah. their feelings and how they're showing up and that they should have pre-planned interventions or techniques when those things happen so that they can get themselves to a more regulated, mm -hmm. more effective state. And I think if companies realize the importance of this and invested in creating an awareness of yes. this at the leadership and individual contributor levels, how much more effective would these organizations be? Because we're not machines. We're not cogs in a wheel. You can't just run us at 100 to 150% of recommended mm -hmm. specifications and expect that nothing's going to break. In fact, if you did have a machine that was devoid of emotions, right, and you could run it at 150%, it would still require maintenance. It would still require care. It would still require yeah. diagnostics. And yet we don't even treat our people like we would mm -hmm. treat a basic machine. We don't invest in diagnostics yeah. and repair and maintenance periods mm -hmm. for our people, you know? And um, 
And I think it's to our detriment. And I think that's what it causes oh, a lot of work. A hundred percent. That's why this yeah. podcast exists. Well, and I can't even tell you how many <laughs> companies I've worked at, especially early in my career, where I heard this, you need to leave your personal stuff at the door before you come in, right? Like you don't bring that to work with you. Like somehow we can separate it, right? Like that's not a thing. And people who try to separate it, it ends up manifesting in the workplace in, you know, unproductive time, right? In not being able to manage conflict well uh, in so many ways. And I, I know there are some companies out there that are being very intentional about like this place, you can bring your whole self to work. We want you to bring your whole self to work, right? We recognize that it you can't just separate your personal life from your work life. They are very much integrated. And what is happening in your personal life is going to impact how you show up in the workplace. And, and I think some companies are doing a great job of offering self-care programs to their employees, like, you know, meditation apps and wellness programs. But what I think is lacking is what you were talking about, Scott, is the leadership embracing that, cultivating that culture, and it, it not just being a separate benefit that's being offered to our employees. It is very much integrated into our corporate culture. Totally. Well, you know what I think they're really saying when they're saying leave that stuff at the door? Like that's been told to us multiple times over the course of our individual careers. What they're really saying is mm -hmm. like, we're not equipped to handle it. We have no idea how to handle it. And we especially have no idea how mm -hmm. to handle it at scale right? It's like, we can't guarantee that all of our leaders are going to be equally effective at helping you through these very kind of like emotional, very real kind of like reactions. And so what do they do? They put the expectation mm -hmm. on the worker and they say, it is your job to be an emotionless robot and to be completely predictable in the way that you show up, like on a daily basis here at work. And people might mm -hmm. be able to do that successfully, at work. <laughs> but then what happens is they're wearing that mask all day and then they come home to the people who rely on them sure. the most intimately and they can't mm -hmm. keep that up anymore. Right. Or maybe they can keep it up for a short period of time, but then they have a nervous breakdown a couple of years later because they can't deal with the accumulation of deferred issues that have, mm -hmm. that have arisen. Right. So to your point, Monica, it's about, yes, you need sponsorship at the executive level. You need an understanding from the leaders at the company that choose to lead by saying our people are people. They have maintenance needs, just like machines have maintenance needs. Our people have maintenance needs. The only difference is our, pe our people have individualized maintenance needs that are based off of their own strengths, their own perspectives, their own traumas. And we're not here to provide therapeutic services to everybody, but we as a leadership team can adapt to this by understanding the truth of the matter, that our people are humans. We are complex beings with emotional capacity, and those emotions can impact us positively mm -hmm. and negatively. Like, you know, a lot of employers are so afraid of the negative impacts of emotion on productivity right. or on quality or on engagement, right? But they don't 
see the flip side, which is like human beings also have tremendous upside that is empowered mm-hmm. and informed yeah. by their emotions. That engagement, that innovation, that culture that really kind of sparks the flywheel of momentum, that is all built off of emotional outputs that only humans mm-hmm. can bring to the table. Right. Um, and so the question is, is like, how do you, how do you optimize? How do you right size? Like, you know, what you as an employer can do versus the work that the individual can mm-hmm. only do for themselves. Right. And that's what unity and company really does is we offer our signature training programs to help executive leadership teams to kind of bring these core competencies to their workplaces But unfortunately, like through all our conversations we've done and all the companies that we've met with, Mm -hmm. we also know how rare it is to have companies that appreciate and understand the science. Like this is not like woo-woo, fluffy, new aged Mm -hmm. BS, right? There's actual real science behind all of these things. Mm -hmm. And that's why it works. Um, so yeah, I'm um, I'm really grateful, Monica, for you that you made the decision to invest in your own self development, and you were actually the leader in this family and the torchbearer in this family for like taking your own personal trauma and bringing back the lessons that you've learned as you've tried to address it and applying it elsewhere, you know. Um, in our lives, like in our relationship and with our kids and, you know, and applying it now to the context of work. So, um, so thank you for doing that because I think it's what the world needs and it's what you're motivated by and it's becoming a strength. I appreciate that. Um, and I think I'm grateful for the intentionality that you've brought to our family and taking the lessons that you learned as a kid, the value systems, the, you know, the experiences that you had as a kid and really taking a step back and saying, is that going to serve me in this next phase of my life? What can I take out that really does? What are those nuggets that I want to pass on to my kids and where do I maybe want to tweak some things? Right. And, and I think that that, that level of perspective and intentionality and understanding is really what's helping to mold and shape our kids for the better so that they can figure out what they're good at, what motivates them and what the world needs, um, in a way that is perfectly perfect for them. Well, thank you for being on the podcast with me. I had fun. Great. Well, um, I think that wraps up our discussion for this week. Um, one of the things that I'll mention is we talked a little bit about unity and company and the signature training programs that we offer. Um, if that's something that you'd be interested to, uh, explore bringing to your organization, you can email us at info at unity for more information on that. Um, other than that, That's all we've got for this week's episode. We hope you'll join us next week. And if you enjoy conversations like this, this is a little bit out of the box from our typical content. Um, Just drop us a line at at info at workplacetherapy.net and uh, let us know um, how this episode resonated with you. 
And if you'd like to see more content like this or more from or hear more from Monica, um, we'll be happy to take any and all requests. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.